According to the Bible, one of the most important changes that always accompanies uh, true repentance and faith in Christ is a growth in genuine love for other people. You read the Bible carefully, you'll see that is one of the things that takes place in a person's life. When they turn from their sin, when they trust in Christ, there's a genuine love that comes in them for other people. And keeping with our sermon series, uh, which we've been titled, Am I Really a Christian? If there's not a change, if there's not a growing love for others that accompanies your profession of faith, there's reason to ask whether you're really a Christian. I say that in reading 1 John chapter 4, verses 7-8. through 8. Listen as I read those verses. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. The Bible tells us, in particular in this passage, that if you're a Christian and you don't love people, there might be if you profess to be a Christian, you don't have love for people, there's some suspect to be uh, looked upon there. Uh, this statement is tough. I understand that. As I've been thinking through this week, this statement is tough to make because for the most part, everyone loves somebody or something, right? Everyone loves somebody or something. If you have to love in order to be a Christian, who doesn't meet that condition? That's probably what's going through our mind this morning. Most people, and for that matter, most Christians would say, if asked, do they love others, their answer would be, sure, I love people. But here's the question I want to present to you. What does it mean to love in a distinctively Christian way? There's a big difference. The answer to that question requires more than just a simple, sure, I love people response. It requires more than that. To answer that question in particular, I would say for professing Christians, we have to look at what God's Word, the Bible, tells us about how Christians should love. The basic... Here's what I want to say. This is basic Christianity, okay? This is not Christianity on steroids. This is not super-duper spiritual Christian. This is basic, essential, bare-bones Christianity. If you're looking at your handout, the main idea is this. Uh, Jesus uh, sacrificed Himself for others. He calls us to do the same. Jesus commands us to love one another as He has loved us. The most important thing, here's what we need to understand, the most important thing about Jesus' command here is to understand how He loved us. Because he says, how I love you is how you are to love one another. We're going to flesh this out as best we can this morning. If you're looking at your handout, verses 31 and 32, what I'm going to do is kind of walk through this. And if we're to love like Jesus loved, then what do we want to know? How did Jesus love? And I think he gives us some ways here that are very clear. Some maybe we've got to dig a little bit to see. But first off, in your, on your handout there, you see Jesus' love was a costly love. Verse 31, When He had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. Now, notice the words there. He had gone out. When He had gone out. He is referring to Judas. Alright? Just as Jesus had said back in verse 21, if you'll look there, 
Notice what Jesus said. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. One of you is going to betray me. And John is sitting next to Jesus, and he asked Jesus in verse 25. Notice what he says, Lord, who is it? You'd be curious to know that as well, right? I'm in this group. Jesus said, somebody's going to betray him. What's your question? Who is it? And I hope it's not me, right? I want, I want to know the answer to that question. And Jesus answered, maybe in a low voice so that only John could hear him. Because in verse 29, if you look there, when Jesus left, the others had no idea what was going on. I think he whispered it in a low voice to where John could hear him and the others didn't hear him. Then if you look, Jesus said in verse 26, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. Then he dipped the bread and gave it to Judas and said... What you are going to do, do quickly. Verse 27, and then notice verse 30, Judas leaves, right? Do you get the picture of the setting and what's going on here? And the next thing we read is Jesus saying in verse 31, now. The word now is important because now is talking about what? What just happened, so now this. Now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in Him. At that very moment, when Judas began his betrayal of Jesus, at that moment, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified. Beginning right now. Now begins the process of being handed over to be killed. Now begins the process when Jesus and God the Father will shine their glory in the greatest way that we've ever seen it. Now is when it begins. Jesus was referring to what? Going to the cross. The cross glorified both who? Jesus and God the Father. And he says, now that process is beginning. You know, the cross, if you look at it on one hand, and we've heard this most of our life, if we've been in church, and and if you haven't, uh, the cross is one of the highest forms of human humiliation. In that time period, there was nothing else you could do to bring more humiliation to a person than to crucify them on the cross. And on the other hand... What is Jesus saying here? The cross is what? Is the greatest display of the glory of God and His Son that the world will ever see. At the cross, God's love, His righteousness, His justice, His mercy, and His grace were magnified like no other time in history. You want to, somebody says, I hear uh, people talk about the glory of God. When was the, when was the time when God put His glory on display to the most uh, highest level? And you can say, well, it was at the cross. God put His glory on display. Now, have you ever asked yourself this question as a Christian? You're going, well, I know, but maybe I do ask this question, maybe I don't. Why the cross? Why why the cross? There are many reasons for the cross, but here's one in particular I want to make sure we understand. At the cross, God's justice was upheld. His Son, the Lord Jesus, bore the awful penalty that God's justice demanded of all sinners. What do I mean by that? All human beings are born sinners. The Bible tells us no one comes into this world and is not under the condemnation of God. So God, because of His justice and His righteousness, must punish sinners. There is no other way. God upholds His justice by punishing sin. And at the cross, how does God uphold His justice? He puts it on His Son. God's justice is upheld 
the justice that was demanded for all sinners, Jesus takes that. But at the cross, His love and His grace were displayed. Because in that, He offers eternal life to all who repent of their sin and trust in Jesus alone. In the cross, Jesus and God the Father are both glorified. Do you see that? How is both of them glorified? God is a just and holy and righteous God and He must punish sin. And so He puts His glory on display by punishing sin. But who does He punish? Not you and I. He punishes who? The Lord Jesus. His glory is put on display. His justice is put on display. And Jesus... His glory is put on display in how? That the love and grace that comes through that death on the cross is extended toward us. Look at verse 32. Verse 32 is just the reverse of verse 31. Since God is glorified in Him, in Jesus, God will also glorify Himself, excuse me, glorify Him in Himself. Again, God is glorified. Jesus is glorified. But notice something here that's different Notice, notice the words, and glorify Him when? At once. That adds a different element to it, right? That's different from what we heard in the beginning. God will glorify Him when? At once. What does that mean? Here's the question. What comes after the cross? Three days later, the resurrection, right? God will glorify Him at once. The resurrection, the ascension, and the exaltation of Jesus. That's what he's talking about here. At once, that will come. At the end of Ephesians chapter 1, if you'll remember when we studied Ephesians chapter 1, here's what we read there. Uh, It says, Jesus was raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of God the Father in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. So God says, I will be glorified and Jesus will be glorified in His uh, upholding my justice on the cross and pouring out grace and love to redeem sinners. But at once, He will also be glorified in what? His resurrection, His ascension, and He will be exalted. Here in John chapter 13, here's what I want you to understand. Jesus knew. He knew. Judas is gone. Remember, Judas is the one to betray Him. He gets up to leave and Jesus says, Now. It's when it begins. Jesus knew Judas is gone. The events are in place. By tomorrow, I will be glorified on the cross. By Sunday, I will be out of the grave. Forty days later, I will send into heaven. And that's the at once that brings this glory to its highest level. At once. That's a costly love, right? Can you imagine... Just stop and think for a moment. Jesus is sitting there with His disciples and the moment Judas gets up and leaves, what does Jesus know? It's beginning. It's starting. The cross is coming. But what does He say? God is going to be glorified in the cross. I'm going to be glorified in the cross. This this love that I have for you is a costly love. Can you imagine? Jesus sits there and He knows. You say, well, he's always known it's coming. But can you imagine that moment when Judas gets up to leave? He knows. It's starting. It's starting right now. Jesus' love at the cross is costly, but also look at verse 33. Jesus' love was one of concern for others. Verse 33. The first two words, we read those and we just kind of jump over them, but these are very important words. Little children. Who's he talking to? Grown men. His disciples. His followers. How does he refer to them? Little 
children. Yet a little while and I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus has this affectionate care for His disciples. And how does He demonstrate that? First, He addresses them as what? Little children. Us men might have a problem with that, right? Who are you talking to? I'm not a child. Little children. This is the only time this word is used in the Gospels. It's a word of tender affection. It has the idea of the feelings a father has toward his children who need help and protection. You dads ever been there? You got a little child that needs help and protection? There's just an affectionate uh, longing to help and protect them, right? Dads, yeah, this is yes. Little children, it's, it's this affection they have. And Jesus is talking to these grown, burly, Middle Eastern, walking in the desert, dirt farmers, fishermen. He's calling them little children. What is He telling them? Man, my love for you is like no other. Little children is a concern for Him. Second, we see Jesus tend to care for His own. That He explains to them that He's going to be leaving soon. And what does He tell them? Stop and think about this. He tells them, I'm leaving soon, but you can't go with Me. Imagine, you've been with Jesus these, all these years, walking with Him, Him teaching you. Can you imagine the affection and how close they've grown to Him? And He says, I'm going to leave you, but where I'm going, you can't come. Can you imagine what's, what's going through their mind? But He explains to Peter in verse 36, and we'll, we'll go back there later. He explains to Peter in verse 36, and then when you get to John chapter 14, He explains to all His disciples. What does He tell them? I'm going to prepare a place for you and I will come again so that where I am, I'll receive you to myself. He's telling them you can't go now, but there, there will be a time when He will tell them later on. He explains that they will follow later. The idea, again, is that of a caring father explaining to his children, He's going away for a while. And the point is, Jesus' love was filled with tender feelings for His disciples. He loved His people dearly. And he was explaining to them, here's what's about to happen. I'm going away. But just know that I love you. I love you deeply. And then he'll explain to them later on, going through John, I'm going away, but I'm coming again. Imagine that kind of love if you're one of them disciples sitting there and Jesus is telling you this. The Apostle Paul speaks of this same kind of love in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 7 through 8. Listen to what Paul says. But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her children. Having so fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel, listen to this, not only the gospel, but our own lives. Because you have become very dear to us. What is Paul saying about the fellow believers there? We were pleased to bring you the gospel, but what else? Not just the gospel, but what? Our own lives. Because you were dear to us. Can I say something here? Paul wasn't just a Sunday morning only Christian. He loved these people with his life. He gave them everything he had. All of life. Nothing was off limits. He wasn't just a Sunday morning only Christian. He gave his life to other believers. Paul knew the love of Jesus and how he'd given his life and given it all for his people. And Paul says, 
Man, that's the love that we need to have for one another. That, that's what I would exhort you this morning. Is that the kind of love we have for one another, that we would give our very lives to one another? That we would see each other as more than just those people we see on Sunday morning, that our lives are knit together because of the Gospel? Look at verse 34. Jesus' love was a commanded love. Don't miss this. This is a command, okay? It's not a suggestion. It's a command. Jesus said, this is what you're supposed to do. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Now, if you're like me, you read that and you're going, well, loving people is not a new commandment. That's in the Old Testament, right? Leviticus 19, 18 says, love your neighbor as yourself. That's not new. We've heard that. The new part of the commandment, look at verse 34. You love one another. What's the next two words? Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Jesus told His followers, He tells His people to love each other. How? How He loved us. How did Jesus love us? With everything He had, right? What's the psalm we're saying? Jesus paid it all. How did Jesus love? It was a self-sacrificing, caring commitment which seeks the highest good of the one loved. Notice that Jesus commands this kind of love. As I said earlier, He commands His followers to love one another. How? As I have loved you. The fact that Jesus commands you to love, listen to this, the fact that Jesus commands you to love another means that you can do that. The fact that Jesus commands you to do that means that you can do it. There are no excuses if you fail to love other believers. Because whatever Jesus commands us to do, He'll do what? He'll give us the grace to do that. You can't do it in your own strength. Galatians 5.16 tells us that love is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's produced in us when we walk in dependence on the Spirit's power. But just as Jesus obediently sacrificed Himself to go to the cross for your salvation, you are to obediently sacrifice yourself for the ultimate good of other believers. Maybe there's some of you here today, and you would say, I don't have feelings of love toward fill in the blank." Let me say that again. I don't have any feelings of love toward... What's the word I'm putting emphasis on? Feelings. Here's what I would say. Lack of feelings of love is never an excuse for neglecting the actions of love toward another person. What does that mean? You don't have to feel like it. You just do it. That's what Jesus said. When we obey God's Word and begin to love others sacrificially, feelings of love will follow. I've seen that happen in my own life. God's proved that in my own life. I just thought, I'll just do it. I'll just love them. I may not feel like it. I'll just do it. And guess what God works in me? I love for that other person. You can't give up on the commandment to love others because you lack feelings for them. Here's what I want to say. I'm sure that if Jesus followed His feelings, what would have happened? Mm, That would have not been good for us. If Jesus had followed His feelings, 
Maybe he wouldn't have went to the cross. Instead, what did he say? Not my will, but God's will. Verse 35. Jesus' love was a visible love. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. What's the next word? That's a big word, right? Man, that is a big word. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you love, if you have love for one another. Don't miss that word. Notice there that how that verse begins. By this refers to verse 34. Loving one another just as Jesus loved us. When you love one another the way Jesus loved, what's the result? All people will what? No. Jesus is not talking about having nice thoughts toward others here. Thoughts cannot be what? Seen. He's talking about love that's what? Visible. People will see that. It comes from a transformed heart. But it's seen in actions, outward actions. It's the sort of love that stands out noticeably in a self-centered world. How many of you agree we live in a self-centered world, right? Me, myself, and I. Long as I'm getting through, forget about everybody else, right? That wasn't Jesus, was it? That wasn't how He loved the world. And He says, you are to love the way I have loved you. Look at verse 35. All people will see and know what... Where are they going to know that you are what? My disciples. I think that word my is a big deal. Because what is Jesus saying? You're mine. They'll know that you are mine. I think John is contemplating here, and I think we should too. John contemplated very deeply this phrase, my disciples, and what must happen for that to be known. And what he concluded was that being a disciple means being truly born again. There's no such thing as Christians who are disciples and then there are Christians who are not disciples. We've got to get past that. There's no category of Christians and then Christians who are disciples. The New Testament knows nothing of that. To be a Christian is to be a follower, a learner of Jesus. And what is Jesus telling us to learn here? Love people the way I have loved you. To be a disciple is not just to be outwardly aligned with a Christian church or a Christian movement or a Christian name. Being a disciple is a person who has been miraculously changed by the Spirit of God into a person with a new heart and a love for Jesus and a love for His people. Being a Christian, being a disciple means you love other Christians the way Jesus loved you. That's what this boils down to, right? Love people the way I have loved you. Let me read you some verses from 1 John. Make yourself a note of these. And we will be going, well, we've heard these verses before. We preached through 1 John. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever loves has been what? In short, they've been saved, right? 1 John chapter 3, verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Oh, there's evidence that we've been born again because we love other believers and we love them how? The way Jesus loved them. 1 John 3.10 By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. 
Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. What does that say? If you don't love your brother, it's evident you don't belong to God. First chapter, uh, First John chapter 4, verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. It can't get much simpler than that. First John chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. Those are just a few verses that tell us clearly. Evidence of salvation is what? Love for other brothers and sisters in Christ. Notice again verse 35. By this, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. All people will have good evidence that you're born of God and know God or a child of God or in the light and no longer in the darkness if you love one another. Let me ask you something. Do you think this was important to Jesus? People will know you are truly disciples of Jesus by whether you have been given a new heart to trust in Jesus and love His people. Notice I added something there, right? What was it I added? Not just loving others, but what? Trusting in Jesus. I included trust because John, when he thinks about the new commandment, he he knew that the new commandment was not an isolated commandment to love, but it was a commandment rooted in the call of Jesus to trust Him as the one who saves us from our sin. And we know that because John says in 1 John 3, verse 23, this is the commandment... We believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded us. What did He say in that verse? What is There's believing, trusting in Jesus that brings salvation, but there's evidence of that in how we love one another as Jesus commanded us. For John, Jesus' command to believe on Him and His command to love were inseparable. That's the point I'm wanting to make. Trust and loving other believers, you cannot separate those. People won't know you're a disciple of Jesus if you make no profession of faith in Jesus. But if you declare yourself to be openly a disciple of Jesus, if He's your Savior, if He's your Lord, if He's the treasure of your life, then your love for others will be evident that your salvation is real. Here's my question for you. Are you a true believer? Are you really a disciple? Is Jesus really your treasure? Have you been really changed by Jesus? That's the question I think Jesus gives us here. Not directly, but maybe indirectly. So when Jesus says in verse 35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He meant love confirms that your profession of faith is real. You love other people, that's evidence that you belong to me. Let's ask ourselves a question. Why is it that love proves whether people are true disciples of Jesus or not? Why is that? Why is the one another love so convincing? The answer is found when we think about why Jesus calls this commandment new. Okay? The new is the way we are to love, and that is as Jesus loved us. That's what's new. Verse 34, the 
second part says, Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Here's what, here's what we want to say here. Never before had the Son of God came to a sinful, broken world and laid down His life for His people. That had never happened. The level of, this level of sacrifice had never happened. The newness of Jesus' command is the sacrificial nature. That's what's new about this command. It's the sacrificial nature. If you imitate this kind of sacrifice and loving each other, you'll be fulfilling the newness of the command. When we love each other in obedience to the new commandment, we love each other with the love of Christ. Look at verses 36 and 38. Your handout says, Jesus' love was a faithful love. Jesus' love was a faithful love. I won't cover everything in these three verses. I'm just going to cover what I think is the core part of these verses. Let me read them. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? What does Peter say next? I will lay down my life for you. That's a bold statement, is it not? I'll lay down my life for you. If you're thinking, if you, who's saying these words? Peter. We know a lot about Peter, right? Peter says, "I'll lay down my life for you." But notice what Jesus says in verse thirty-eight. Remember, Jesus' love is a, a faithful love. Jesus answered, "Will you lay down your life for me?" Really, Peter? You willing to do that, Peter? Notice what Jesus says. Truly, truly. I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. What has Peter just said? I'm going to lay it down for you. I'm going to lay my life down. What does Jesus say? Really, Peter? Because here's what's got about to happen. Before that rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Jesus knew that Peter would deny him. And he predicts it. He knew that all His disciples at some point in time were going to flee from Him during the night when He's taken in. In spite of their saying, they would do the opposite. They were just like Peter. We'll never leave you, Lord. What is Jesus says, I know what's going to happen. I know what's going to happen. Who are these people? They're followers of Jesus. They're His disciples. Jesus knows they're going to do that, but Jesus didn't deny them, listen to me, because of their failure. He loved them to the end. How do we know that? Look at verse 1 of chapter 13. What does it say? Jesus loved them what? To the end. And He showed that love, listen to me, by restoring them and using them after His resurrection. Here's what I want to point out. What has Peter just done? He has sinned, right? He denies the Lord. How many times? Three times. Jesus knows this is coming, right? What does He do to Peter later on? Jesus didn't leave Peter in his sin. He restored him. In John chapter 21, you remember what Jesus asked Peter? Peter, do you what? Love me. How many times did he ask him? Oh, one for each denial. Peter, do you love me? 
And when it came out of the end, what did Jesus say to him? Then go what? Feed my sheep. Feed my... You know what's happening there? Peter had sinned against Jesus. And Jesus knew it was going to happen. He failed. And Jesus does what to him? He doesn't leave him in his sin. He what? He restores him. And then He uses him for His work. Love means being committed to the other Christian's highest good. The highest good of all Christians is that we would become more like Jesus by growing in holiness and and living to glorify Him. And because biblical love seeks the highest good of the other person, namely that they become more like Jesus, love requires us to do just like Jesus did with Peter. He didn't leave Peter there, did he? What did he do? Come here, Peter. You need, you need to come back from that scene. You need to come back. Jesus' love to him was faithful, right? Love does not enable a person to continue in their sin or to live in foolish ways. Love tries to help people learn to obey and follow Jesus. That's what Jesus is doing to Peter here. He's not letting him continue on. He's saying, look, Peter. And Jesus knew he was going to do it to begin with, right? And still he says what? Come here, Peter. I know you denied me. Turn from that sin. I'm going to restore you and I'm, I'm, I'm going to use you. Understand this. Listen to me and listen to me carefully. Jesus did not overlook Peter's sin, did He? He didn't leave Peter alone, right? He didn't let Peter keep going. You may say, but he didn't condemn Peter either, right? No. You would be correct in that because if you read John chapter 3, verses 17 through 18, it says that Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. And why did he not come to condemn the world? Because the world was what? Condemned already. He didn't come to condemn because the world was condemned already. Jesus didn't overlook Peter's sin. Instead, what did he do? He restored him, but what did He ultimately do? He went to the cross and bore the penalty for His sin. That's how Jesus showed His love. He, he, he bore that... Jesus, Jesus didn't overlook sin. He didn't wink at, the, at people's sin. What did He do? He went to the cross and gave His life to redeem them from those sins. He didn't leave them there. So, so my question is, you know, for me and for Redbud, My little children. Put yourself in that spot. My little children. This is what Jesus is calling for among us. Just as I have loved you sitting in the pews at Redbud, you love one another. Not just with thoughts, but with love like Jesus, right? And remember, it's what? A command. Let's make some application here. Some practical ways. Love sacrificially and suffer along with others. I know we don't like that. We want our life to be comfortable. We don't want any suffering. We don't like that. Jesus says, love sacrificially and suffer along with others. Caring for others deeply requires us to live alongside them by bearing their pain and their agony. Here's the question I have for you. Who do you suffer with? And how will you live sacrificially to help bring them relief in their suffering? Second, love does not discriminate or require qualifications. 
I love this. Jesus didn't place a standard on the kinds of people He would love and care for. My question for you is this. How prejudiced or selective are you in your love? Oh. There will be a lot of repenting going on today. How selective are you in those you love? Do you gravitate toward only certain types of people? Oh my. Caring for people is not just talk. You've heard the saying, talk's cheap. Well, it was cheap for Jesus. He didn't spend His time talking about how compassionate He was. He did it. What can you do today to bring tangible care to another fellow believer? Here's another one. This one's tough too. Love calls us to slow down, stop, and make time for people. Busyness consumes us, right? Amen? We must never forget that we have to stop or at least slow down to take care of others. And here's my question. Who will you stop for or slow down for today? Disciples, Christians, they love with self-sacrificing service to one another. Loving like Jesus means laying down your lives, your privileges, your preferences for one another. Loving like Jesus means loving your brothers and sisters across racial and ethnic lines. Loving Jesus means you love the weak and immature believer. You know, a lot of times that weak brother, we want to do what? Man, why don't they just get it? Why don't they just get with the flow and get up here with us? Young Christians, listen to me. Love the old Christians. Some of you old folks are going, yeah, amen. (laughs) Love the old Christians. You need the wisdom and stability of the older folks. Can I tell you something, young people? You don't have it figured out yet. You don't have it figured out. Old folks, love the young Christians. You need, our church needs the fresh enthusiasm of the young people. God put us together. You know one of the things I tell people about Rebbe that's unique? I said in the context in which we live in the rural south, you go into rural churches, most of the time what do you see in the churches? Old people. Go ahead and say it. Older people. You look around this congregation. There's a blend, right? Young people love the old folks. Old folks love the young people. We've we got to be in this thing together. We've got to lay down our preferences. And the things that we think we have to have. And we got to love one another. And my response to that would be, how blessed will be the church that loves like this? Because if we love like Jesus, the lost world will know that we belong to Him, right? They will look at us and they'll go, those people, there's something about them. They claim to be Christians. Man, they love one. That's got to be real. They've got to be genuine in what they profess to be. Let's pray.